Good morning. In Paul's day, Corinth was the most beautiful, modern, and industrious city of its size in Greece. With a population of about 300,000, Corinth's their public marketplace was the Mall of America of the Roman Empire. It was larger than any in Rome. It controlled Corinth did two major harbors and thus commanded the trade routes between Asia and Rome, located about two miles south of this narrow isthmus that formed a land bridge between two land masses, and therefore it was a city catering to sailors and traveling salesmen, sailors who gladly spent their money there. Corinth had a reputation for commercial prosperity. However, it also was a byword for evil living. To Corinthianize, it was a part of the Greek language. It became a word. And it meant to live with drunken and immoral debauchery. That's what it meant to Corinthianized. If you were called a Corinthian lass or woman, that wasn't saying good things. Uh, Paul zeroes in on some tough issues confronting the church because of the culture. His concern was that there was too much of Corinth in the church. Um, read what he says. Oh. It's in your worship folder. Uh, follow along. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 through 11. Paul writes, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent? to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Anytime you come to a passage, three questions you have to ask. 
What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? What does it say? That's observation. What does it mean? That's interpretation. What does it mean to me? That's application. So, before we get to the questions of what it means and what it means to me, we have to do due diligence. We have to figure out what would this have meant to them? How did they hear these things? What did it say? Um, Paul talks about a grievance against another and says when one of you has it, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous? A grievance against another is an idiom at the time for civil a civil lawsuit, civil litigation. Paul, what Paul learned that this occurred in the church. This church was not big in Corinth at the time. Very small. So it's probable, possible, that there's only one in incident that he's referring to, heard about it, a brother bringing a brother to court, probably a civil lawsuit, maybe having to do with boundary issues. We don't know. doesn't tell us. Um, but in Paul's mind, suing one another before pagan magistrates is something Paul considers a horrid breach Christian fellowship. And he starts it, the word, the first word he uses in the sentence is, dare you do this? And basically he says, how do you dare doing something like this? What makes this action so abhorrent to Paul is that a Christian brings a fellow Christian before the bar of the unjust uh, the term again reveals that this is a civil matter. There's words for criminal misbehavior and civil litigation. This is a civil case. Paul doesn't presume that Christians are somehow above being judged by secular authorities in the case of a crime. It says in Romans that he affirms God's given God has given governing authorities jurisdiction to execute wrath on the wrongdoer in criminal cases. He's not saying that Christians are above the law in terms of criminal cases. What he's referring to has to do with the civil litigation, not a crime, just trying to balance the scales. Somebody feels like they've been treated unjustly in some type of dispute. And um, Paul says in trivial cases like this, at this time, in Corinth, at this time, uh, that's a different matter. Going to law before the unrighteous was a problem in Paul's eyes. Uh, before the unrighteous, what does that mean? Um, both Jews and Christians referred to themselves as the righteous. Therefore, it was normal to call Gentiles and unbelievers the unrighteous or ungodly. That's one thing he might mean. He might mean, why do you go into a courtroom manned by someone who is not a Christian. Um, also, though, unrighteous can mean unjust and dishonest and untrustworthy. Somebody a little bit crooked, a little bit twisted. And at the time, um, evidence suggests that the legal system in Corinth was not... Um, Something to be trusted. I'll give you a couple of um, quotes. Um, one said, the courts will never convict any man, <clears throat> however guilty, if only he has money. And that's what it was like in Corinth. I remember being in China, and at that time, individuals would talk about um, courtrooms where bribery was practiced. Almost expected. 
talked to somebody once who was trying to get a brother out of trouble and could only give this much. And if they had given more, they could have gotten him off of them. And that's just the way this was in Corinth at this time. Um, one talked about judges, a writer at the time, gowned vultures. He says, all our judges nowadays sell their judgments for money. Um, civil courts of this era were less than impartial. Substantial corruption did exist. Uh, the term unrighteous applies to honorary magistrates and the juries who pronounced verdict, who were open to bribery and were biased toward the powerful. In the court systems in Corinth, the wealthy were able to take unfair advantage of the judicial system by exercising their prestige and influence. If you had the money, you could make sure that the verdict would be pledged in your favor. Social standing weighted the scales of justice. And if that didn't work, if you couldn't bend the scales of justice because you were powerful, then bribery could tip the balance. The way it worked, the poor always had the cards stacked against them in a courtroom in Corinth, always. This fact of life is reflected in the scripture, Paul writes, James writes actually, but you have dishonored the poor. Is not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? If you didn't have money and were dragged into court, you were toast. Um, you have very little chance of receiving a fair verdict. The aim of the ancient lawsuit was not just to get justice. It was used as a way of prevailing over another to flex your social political muscles. Um, lawsuits, one writes, were perhaps the most single generator of private hostility in Rome. If you ask why is it that people were, it was lawsuits. They liked to do them. They liked to go up against one another. It was a way to kind of evidence one's standing. A lawsuit every once in a while was good, was good for the status, good for the way you um, were seen. Such public confrontations would naturally generate, as you might imagine, uh, Two individuals within a church, imagine two individuals within a church this side, and their churches were smaller, going to war against one another, and how what would happen within the church is they would line up behind one or two. And if you lined up behind the powerful one, that might work in your favor. However, it would be too bad to be able to turn your back on somebody who might have been in the right but was poor. At any rate, it created a very difficult situation. And that's why Paul confronts it. Paul's, Paul's own run-ins with the legal system in Rome had given him a jaundiced view of it. He languished in prison for two years because the governor hoped for a bribe. And so Paul languished for a couple of years and he experienced the uh, business end of the Roman legal system he seeks to provide some leadership that will help the church in Corinth and those who were in the church see the error of their ways. And he writes, 
Or do you not know that saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have any such cases, have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Paul's purpose in talking about this is not to try to talk about what exactly our role will be in the future in terms of judging angels. His point is the inconsistency between what they'll be doing at the end of the age and what they're doing now. If in the future we are to be like Christ, immortal spirits in immortal bodies, the Bible doesn't let us know what responsibilities we'll have, but there are some things like this. We'll be judging angels. How will that work? I don't know. But it will be some status, it will be some authority that will be granted as we will be embodied spirits, just like Jesus and angels are unembodied spirits and so on. But there is a sense of authority. And so if we're going to exercise that authority in the future, Paul writes, why do you not exercise it in a small way now. You're going to be judging angels. I mean, why appeal to pagan courts at the time to try trivial cases? That's his, that's his point. Um, if they're destined to be participants, again, in celestial judgment, they ought to be able to handle mundane matters of far less consequence. At the time, Jews were given the ability to settle disputes between themselves in their own courts. Again, the government would allow that in terms of non-criminal matters. Criminal matters were another issue, but if you had to settle a dispute, they allowed Jews to have their own courts so that they could honor their ancestral laws, their traditions. They allowed that, and they allowed it too with Greek organizations. They could settle disputes. They gave them the authority to exercise jurisdiction over themselves in terms of some matters. And what Paul's issue is, is he's encouraging uh, Christians to do the same thing. Solve your own problems. Talk about it. Deal with it among yourself. That's his point. Uh, he recommends, Paul does, an alternative to instituting legal proceedings against a Christian brother. Not only deal with it yourself, but look what he says. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. And again, Paul will start to turn up the heat here. And we've got to hear what he says. And then we'll talk about what it means and what it means to us. But if such actions are eternally perilous, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? The short time we will live on this earth compared to eternity, why 
you know, it says, grab for all the gusto you can. You only go around once in life. The only problem is this life is this big. We are going to exist as children of God through faith in Christ a hundred thousand million years from now. Why in any way jeopardize that for this? To extend the boundary a little bit? To be able to have this much money in the bank rather than that much? And what Paul is saying, think about it. Think about it. And he is telling them pretty directly. Um, those who take cases against brothers before unjust judges are doing, Paul says, something wrong to their brother. They are wronging and defrauding. Paul's eyes, it completely discredits their witness of God's love to the world. And the Corinthians seem to have this sense, and we'll see it. We talked about last week, where um, there was a case of a man whose father married, and he either died or divorced. So this son ended up in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Now, it's biological mother, and that was troubling. We talked about it last week and why Paul was troubled. But the Corinthians had this sense, and this was part of what Paul is, is there's an arrogance about it. It wasn't that they thought, oh, geez. And I don't know if they were doing high fives, but there was something about their attitude they felt above it. They felt like, doesn't matter. We are speaking in tongues. We are doing this. We have indications of experienced spirituality. And because we have these experiences, that means it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we act. And Paul indicates, well, yeah, it does. It does. Um, there's an arrogance, and he sets them straight. Again, the words are direct, troubling. Uh, we'll talk about what they mean and what they mean to us. He goes on, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul talked about it in chapter 5 about the sexually immoral, and he talks about it again. Um, the Corinthians were, again, not only immoral as a culture, they were very immoral. Um, and the Corinthian church was arrogant about it for some reason. Idolaters come next, which is strange because idolaters is sandwiched in between this list of sexual vices. It's the sexually immoral, then idolaters, then it's going to go on to talk about adulterers and homosexuality, and it squeezes idolatry into the middle, which actually is it's sandwiched in there for a reason. There was a hill of the Acropolis that towered over the city of Corinth, and on it stood the great temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And in the temple of Aphrodite, they had on staff a thousand priestess prostitutes who served at the temple. Let me tell you how this worked. Um, intercourse between the gods 
was considered at the time to be that which created the world. It was the genesis of the world, the commingling, the intercourse of the gods. So, if, therefore, you wanted to guarantee a prosperous business or a prosperous family, you wanted to access the power that brought the world into being. So, in order to do that, you would imitate the gods. Now, what did the gods do to bring everything into? They had intercourse. So, there's priestess prostitutes. And so, what you did, if you wanted to guarantee that, you would indicate, okay, this is what I want. I want God, the gods to bless this. And you would be sent in to um, imitate the gods with a priestess prostitute. Uh, really puts a different spin on the question, how is church? <laughs> okay. Adulterers refers to um, sexual relationships outside of marriage. Um, men who practice homosexuality seems there's two words used to describe what Paul is targeting. Males who are penetrated sexually by males more passively and males who do the sexual penetration, both. Um, though homosexual, homosexual acts were generally accepted in the ancient world, um, Jewish texts were unanimous in condemning them. There's some individuals who try to play with these terms in indicating that Paul isn't putting a target on homosexuality, but he is. And again, that's what it means. And we'll talk about what it means to us, but that's what it means. He's targeting that and says, no, that's not okay, along with sexual immorality, along with adultery. Um, Paul, shared the, Paul shared the Jewish aversion to adultery, idolatry, and homosexual acts. He doesn't stick there, then he goes on to talk about thieves and the greedy. Greed is related to insatiability. That's literally what greed means. It's, I want more. And it applies itself in different contexts. It can, the greedy include those who believe that their sexuality is a right, not a responsibility. And they can express it any way they want however many times they want, because, again, greed is, I want more, I want more, I want more. This isn't enough, this much might be enough. The only problem is, it's never enough. And it can apply to sexuality, it also can apply, again, greed, to monetary things. Those who dishonor the rights and property of others, um, they are targeted Seems if you look at if you look in the Bible and if you look in the minor prophets, the reason why judgment exists is because of defrauding people, injustice. It talks about those who are like healthy sheep who butt out less healthy sheep out of the way and go for all they want. And, and that is the reason for judgment. In fact, Sodom and Gomorrah indicted for, you know, we think of why was Sodom and Gomorrah indicted? 
Yeah, there was sexuality going on. Listen to what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Okay, then it goes on. She and her daughters had, you know what they had, right? Pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. So you end up, what is the root of the issue in Sodom? And what was the fruit of the problem? Certainly the fruit of the problem is sexuality, it seemed, but the root of the problem might have been different. Prosperous ease, greed, we can get more, we can get more, we can get more. And that applied both sexually and monetarily, and, and that seems to be an issue biblically. Justice, a lack of justice is a big deal. And people of God, we frequently make sexual sins capital S and anything else small case S. Bible doesn't do that. Bible doesn't do that. In fact, as we read through this list, some of those words, homosexuality, adultery, leap off the page and we think, yeah, but, but look at the other words it uses. The greedy. I don't think we're going to be able to get out of here unscathed. You know what I mean? Drunkards. That was so common in, in Greek plays. Whenever a Corinthian is written into the script and he's on stage, he's always loaded. <laughs> and here comes the Corinthian. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Revilers, um, it's those who slander and are verbally abusive, spread rumors. And are harsh, verbally abusive. Swindlers, those who prey on and defraud others. I uh, says, Paul writes, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When Paul urges people to change their ways, he always gives them a why. And that's important. As we talked about last time, we'll talk about again. The why is really important. Because God judges not just the what, but the why. Not just the actions, but the thoughts and attitudes that were behind the action. That's what the Bible indicates. God judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Some people look like a mess, but underneath, their thoughts and attitudes are another thing. Some other people are pristine on the outside, but their thoughts and attitudes aren't all that great, and there's going to be some surprises. Uh, what Paul says here, elsewhere he says, because you are, now be. If you are members of the body of Christ, and you are, why lie to one another? You're members of the body of Christ, therefore speak the truth to one another. It's like a hand lying to a foot. So again, do you understand? He gives, you are, now be. It gives, so why should you be honest? Because you're members of the body of Christ. 
And that's what he always does. Here, it's not just because you are. He says, you once were, but now are. You once were this way, but now are different. So, um, having washed off your former life, let your former life be your former life. Okay, what does this mean? And what does it mean to us? When we come to things, when we come to understand, there's some principles. Um, we have to understand what does it say. I think we maybe got a sense for what it says. Okay, in terms of what does it mean and what does it mean to us. Um, we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture because the Bible is not just a bunch of disconnected documents. This has one author. And therefore, we find application and we come broadly so that we can find out how should we deal with sin? How do we deal with sin? Just say no, right? That simple? Deal with sin? Yeah. Deal with sin? Yeah. There's a question. How? How? Let's talk about the nature of sin. Come to a couple of things in terms of the nature of sin, and we'll look. Sin is influenced by culture. Um, look what it says in Romans 1.28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. We looked at this last week. What it seems to indicate in Romans 1 is that God's godness is reflected in creation, in the way he has put things together. And what Paul indicates in this section, I just put a verse of it, is that the problem is not acknowledging God leads God to give cultures over. They didn't acknowledge him as God, so he gave them over to sexual immorality. In the text, he gives them over to homosexuality. He gives them over in this verse. It says, gave them over three, I think three or four times, to a debased mind. A debased mind is a mind that's unfit, unflawed, a reject. It's a mind that cannot discharge the purpose for which it was created. If you find something in the trash, it might look okay, but if somebody threw it away, they threw it away because it might work, but it really doesn't. And when he talks about a debased mind, it's a mind that really doesn't work well with regard to making good choices. Here's what it indicates. Because of failure to acknowledge God as God, listen to what it says. God gives cultures over to a debased mind, to having a mind that loses its ability to make good choices. Um, so what ends up happening in this context, the result of judgment is sexual immorality. That's the result of judgment. The reason for judgment is idolatry. 
And again, you say, well, that, 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 but it's important. It's important. We tend, and again, there are issues. But what we find elsewhere, sexual immorality is not the root of the problem. It's the fruit of the problem. The root of the problem is not how we view sex. The root of the problem is how we view God. That's the root of the problem. And what it indicates here, when that's messed up, now again, it's not talking individually. You can't make this an individual case. If this guy is doing that thing, then you'd be able to say, oh, I know what happened there. <laughs> this guy rejected that, and then God gave him over. And It's not talking about individuals. It's talking about cultures. Cultural predisposition. So to be chased within a culture like this is more difficult. Here's my question. Do we live in such a culture? that has been given over at some level? Mm, what do you think? Tough question, don't you think? I see some heads going up and down. Again, I'm not saying you have to believe in seven literal days of creation. I really don't think you need to. But by and large, early in the 20th century, we called the author of this into question relative to his name. That's not the only thing that we've done, but might that Erasure of God's creating of this world, again, culturally. Do you think that might be behind the sexual insanity we experience? Culturally? What do you think? It is possible. Paul makes that, that's the, that's the argument he makes here. Again, sexual immorality, I want to make this clear. Paul writes in Romans 1, sexual immorality is not the reason for God's judgment. It's the result. Giving people over to a debased mind, I'm sorry, you're not going to honor me, therefore I'm going to give you a mind that doesn't work very well. Not individually, but culturally. And in order to make good choices, you're going to have to swim against the stream of culture. Yes. Possible? I think so. I think so. Um, Sin is influenced by culture. Sin is also influenced by law. It says, it says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. I must, that's a typo. That can't be right. Uh, the law came in to, it must be decreased the trespass, right? I think I must have copied this wrong. I didn't, Chase? I didn't do it wrong? You know what? That's actually what it says. The law came in to increase the trespass. Do you know what a trespass is? A conscious disobedience of a definite divine command. That's what a trespass is. A sin is not specific. It's a disposition. It's a rebellion. A trespass is a specific kind of sin. It's a conscious disobedience of a definite divine command. 
Now, in giving the Mosaic Law, did God give the law in order, in order that we might curb and decrease trespasses or increase them? Increase them. Increase them? This is important because we're talking about how to deal with sin. And what we find is putting on top of sin, obey or else, will that decrease sin or increase it? Let's be smart in how we deal with sin. And let's be smart in how we encourage others to deal with their sin. Let's not put over them something that will end up increasing, maybe not that sin, but other ones. Unrighteousness and self-righteousness are both equally sinful. The one that's more difficult for Jesus to deal with is self-righteousness. Sin's influenced by law. Law sets the stage for grace by increasing trespasses. I tell you what, do you need a Savior if you're not a sinner? No. Therefore, the law came in to increase trespasses so that we would know, huh? I need a Savior. Of course, I don't do what. Yeah. Look what it says in Romans 7, 7 and 8. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. In fact, we talked about this before. Uh, I wish it stopped at nine commandments. Wouldn't that be better? Don't covet. You can control actions. Can you control coveting? Shake your head this way. Go ahead. Can you, can you control coveting? Everybody do this. No, you can't control coveting. You, can't, you can control behaviors. You can't control thoughts. You go buy a house and you want, you want what your neighbor has. You're guilty of it. So am I. And it violates the commandments. Well, we can't really meet. Yeah, he does. He does. We kind of erase the Tenth Commandment, don't we? Jesus didn't erase it. He says, if you're mad at your brother, you've committed murder. Oh, I, I get what you're saying, Jesus. No, he says that's the standard. I'll, I tell you what, I'm glad we're talking about this, Mike. You know, because I would never be sexually immoral. Yep. Lust is immorality. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean, Mike. Yeah, good one. Jesus was serious. Coveting is a violation of the commandments. Are you going to play your hand? Are you going to appeal to heaven on the basis of how well you do? Don't. You know what we need to clean up our thoughts about? Yeah, I do, Mike. We need to clean up our thoughts about righteousness. Righteousness. How we get it. And if you don't get righteousness by putting obey and be blessed, disobey and be cursed. You put that over on top of somebody, do you increase or decrease the problem? 
You know what? You know what it means to control sin with law is like trying to control a grease fire with water. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? If you contr- if you throw water on a grease fire, what happens? <laughs> it increases the problem. That's what biblically. That's what we. That's what we're told. Uh, Sin identifies something as dangerous needing to be controlled. Uh, you know what we do naturally? It says, sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produces in me every kind of covetous desire. Randy, come on up here for a second. I'm going to show you how this works. Sin creates, and I'm not, well, sin, Randy's a sinner. Let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> they clap. See, this is like Corinth. That's exactly what Corinth did. They, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so. Why is it JC up? <laughs> it's uh, sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Let me show you what that looks like. Uh, sin seizes the opportunity afforded by the commandment. The commandments identify something as good or evil. Now, I'm going to represent something in Randy's life that's evil. I'm a thought or an action. Bing! Here I am. And then sin seizes the opportunity. Sin here is a power. It's not an act. Sin as a power seizes the opportunity afforded by the commandment. You say, Mike, what are you saying? Okay, I want, I'm, let, let this be. Let's let this thing here be a bad thought. And I'm sin. I am sin as a power, okay? I want to control this guy. I'm not just an act. I am a power. You get it? Understand? I want to master this guy. Okay, here's how I'll do it. I will identify this as wrong. Ooh, evil. And it's in you, evil. Now, okay, you know, don't just sit there do something. So, I want you to swing and try to get this thing. Now, what's going to happen? Sin is going to seize the opportunity afforded by the commandment. It's like judo. His force in trying to contain this, what I am going to do is sin. I'm going to take this force and I'm going to throw him on his back. I'm going to master him by his going after all the things in his life. Say, oh, well, okay, if that's so, um, what are we supposed to do? How do we deal with How are we supposed to deal with sin? Um, it's possible to deal with sin. In fact, necessary. Be clear about how. Be clear about how. Let's talk about the nature of salvation quickly. Quickly. It says, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Is it okay to do anything you want to do? No, if you, you have to put to death the deeds of the body. There's some things that need to die. The question is, what's the question? What's the question? 
how. A what without a how is not very helpful. How? Okay, let's go on. Um, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Everyone on the planet is, is innervated by one of two spirits. Sometimes you hear, we don't have a spirit inside us, then the Spirit of God comes in and then we have a spirit. That's not accurate. It's not accurate. There are two spirits in the world. There's a spirit of slavery leading to fear, and both of them are religious. There's a spirit of slavery leading to fear, and there's a spirit of adoption as sons, okay? Two spirits. We're all, not all or nothing, but we are more or less innervated by one or the other. And the, there's a spirit of slavery leading to fear. And um, Next slide. There we go. There we go. I'm going to say the smallest spirit. The spirit of the world promotes judgment. Here's what it looks like inside when we are ruled by the spirit of the world. We turn on ourselves. We look at ourselves. We rush at ourselves. We contain what's bad. We try to retain what's good. We go to war with ourselves. We say, God, wait a minute. And then we try to fight ourselves. And we, and we say, boy, I've got I to master this or I'm going to really be in trouble. And it promotes internal judgment. A person like that, what's their love capacity going to be? How good are they going to be at loving themselves or others? Nil. And you know what? that's kind of the picture churches paint about how. That's the spirit of the world. That's not how God tells us to deal with sin. How does he tell us to deal with sin? The spirit judges judgment. The spirit judges judgment. There's things that need to go. You don't have the power to overtake them. You're saying, what should I do then? Um... How does the spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body? I, I included an article in here because I wanted to be I wanted to be clear about this. I want you to be clear, and so I'm going to read this, and we're going to just read the second page of it. But at the end of the first page, again, it's in your worship folder. Listen or read along. It has this question: How does the spirit put the misdeeds of the body to death? Don't you think that's an important question? That's why I, wanted to, I just want you to be clear. I'm going to read, and that's how we're going to end the message. Um, in fact, worship team, sometime during the course of this, come on up, and then we'll close this. But I'm going to read this. So, The Spirit does not frighten to death the misdeeds of the body. It says, you do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. The Spirit does father to death the misdeeds of the body. You receive the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. God does not use a spirit of fear to motivate us to live godly lives. When the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it is encouraging us to revere and respect God, not be afraid of him. It says there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. 
The one who fears is not made perfect in love. When we are driven by fear, we attempt to change our behavior in order to escape God's punishment and condemnation. This is not biblical. Children of God do not need to fear God's condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't use the threat of condemnation to motivate his children to obey him. God uses the spirit of sonship to motivate us to live godly lives. The Spirit encourages us to relate to God as Abba or Daddy. God's Spirit tells us that God is our Father and we are His sons and daughters. This gets to the heart of the matter. When we feel abandoned and alone, we act in self-centered, self-serving ways. The Holy Spirit encourages us to trust in God's care for us in order to promote loving actions and attitudes. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Someone who speaks for God will not use frightening images of judgment to get you to obey God. This is not how the Holy Spirit promotes obedience. Someone who speaks for God will focus your attention on God's fatherly love and care for you and his commitments to you. This is how the Holy Spirit promotes obedience. Obedience matters. That is why God's Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. give you a very practical thing in closing. How do you confess your sins? Confess literally means to say what God says about something. That's literally what it means, to say the same thing. Here's what I'm going to recommend. Close your eyes, bow your head. You did something wrong. Maybe something sexual. You name it. God, you know what? I know that this is something that you would not have me do. And you tell them what it is. But to say what God says about that, you need to say some other things about it. You need to say, thank you that you're still in me. You're still with me. Good's still ahead of me. Guaranteed, because that's the new covenant. I will be Helios to their unrighteousness and will remember their sins no more. So to say what God says, you need to say both. You just can't talk about what was wrong. You need to say what he says about it. You do that. I'm going to go over it again. You tell them what it is, whatever it is. Online, you did something, whatever it is. God, I did this. And now, remember those four things? I thank you that you're still in me. You're still with me. Good's still ahead of me. Guaranteed. That's confession. Do you remember those four things? What's the first? To yourself. You remember what's the second? What's the third? What's the fourth? Remember this when you screw up. You're still in me. And you're still with me. And good's still ahead of me. Guaranteed. You practice that. It will change your heart. And it will change progressively. It will change your life. God, thank you for your truth. I pray that you would help us to understand not only your standards, but how we become 
Christ-like. In Jesus' name, amen.